shortly before our meeting began, I was having again the happy privilege of chatting with a dear friend of some years standing, the Reverend Donald Jones, who is here with us this evening. We were discussing old books, and I mentioned one to him that is a particular treasure, Sir Henry Spellman's The History of Sacrilege. What is the book about? It was written by someone more than 200 years ago, and the last printing of it, I believe, was 1832. The man who wrote it was of the English nobility, and what he did was to trace what happens to men who lay their hands on things that belong to God. Spellman goes through the Old Testament. He gives a number of illustrations from the scriptures through the centuries to the time of Henry VIII and then concentrates on him. The story he tells is well documented. No one was ever able to shake the validity of what he said. Henry VIII seized the holdings of the church of his day. He confiscated its properties and gave them to his favorites or sold them to enrich himself. Now Spellman is ready to grant. Reformation may be one thing, but seizure and confiscation is taking that which belongs to the Lord and using it for ourselves. It is laying unhallowed hands on the Lord's ark. And the punishment for that in the Old Testament was death. He traces the families, together with that of Henry VIII, that participated in this seizure, and they all died out by the third generation, without exception, some within the first generation. Well, says Sir Henry Spellman, men might say that in those days the life expectancy was not very great. Let us look at what the Duke of Norfolk did. He gave to his followers and retainers vast sections of northern England. But he said, those men and their descendants had no such judgment as overwhelmed Henry VIII and his retainers. This story is true. As a matter of fact, under Edward VI, one of the early Puritan preachers, Laver, 
in a sermon in one of the great churches of England, called upon the Puritan people of England to make an outpouring of gifts to the Lord. Because, he said, the wrath of the Lord is upon this land for what was recently done to the houses of God. And we will only stay his wrath for this sacrilege by an outpouring of gifts. Give to the Lord what is his due. A scholar, W.K. Jordan, by no means a Christian, has said that out of that sermon by labor began the great outpouring of evangelical gifts to establish schools and foundations and missions, an outpouring that continued almost to our time, to World War I. For a century and a half, one of the themes of the Puritan clergy was precisely see what happened then, what the wrath of God was when men laid unhallowed hands upon that which belonged to the Lord. The story that Spellman told shook me and moved me deeply. But I realized after I had finished reading it with a sense of shame that it should not have surprised me. After all, again and again, the scriptures speak concerning this matter. Our Lord himself declared very plainly in words that should make parents tremble. In Luke or Matthew 18:6, we read, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now consider the meaning of that. Our Lord was there speaking of the children that were there, covenant children. What is a covenant child? A covenant child is one whose parents, believing in the Lord, bring their children to the Lord and say, This child which thou gavest to me, I give back to thee for he or she is thine. And it is the Lord's will that must be done to that child. How dare we then take the Lord's child and put, it, put that child in the hands of unbelievers? To be educated for eight and twelve years with no mention of the Lord's name, unless it be taken blasphemously. It would be better for a millstone to be hanged about our neck and to be drowned in the deepest sea than to face the wrath of our Lord for giving a covenant child his possession to unbelievers and to unbelieving schools. All through the centuries, 
The ungodly have dreamed of seizing possession of children. Plato's Republic gives us a program whereby all children are to be taken by the state to be educated in terms of the state. When the Turkish Empire seized vast areas of Christendom, at one point going to the very gates of Vienna, what they did was to develop and apply Plato's ideas. And they said, every five years we will go through and take our pick of all the children to rear them in terms of the faith of Islam, to be the servants of the state, to be the civil service and the bureaucracy, to be the military. So there was a regular harvest of Christian children who were taken at five and lost to the faith. They become the tools and the armies of the Turkish Empire. Much later, humanists, beginning in Prussia, saw that standard, the Turkish, the Mohammedan standard, is a good ideal. Why not take all children at the age of five? All children and rear them in terms of the doctrines of the Enlightenment, in terms of the doctrines of rationalism, to deliver them from the evils of a biblical faith. These were missionary-minded men. And so they developed, first of all, in Prussia, the standard of state control of all education. And sad to say, now countless people who call themselves Christians think there's nothing wrong with sending their children, covenant children, given by the Lord, returned to the Lord in baptism, and giving them to the hands of a system that leaves the word of God out of education. And now, of course, they're not satisfied, these people. These statist educators are actually talking about having campus schools. This was first proposed in the 1890s by Parker, who was the predecessor of Dewey. We will separate them from their parents have them in our possession in a campus school to break the back of the family, of its faith, and of its control over the child. This is seriously asked for by statist educators. None of this should surprise us. Humanistic sociologists have studied society. They know exactly where the strength of the Christian church is. It is in the family. 
and in Christian schooling. This is the key to power, control of the children. As a matter of fact, one man, not a Christian, a psychoanalyst, has said, and I quote, Marriage is that institution to which man owes his moral perfecting, unquote. In other words, it's the family that shapes us and molds us. Therefore, we must separate the child from the family. We must attack the very institution of the family. The family, we are told, is incompetent. The family, we are told, is unfit to be entrusted with the care of its children. At present, of course, we are seeing trials in a number of places, and I was handed a copy of the Sunday, April 27, that was yesterday, 1980, Greenville News, with a story of parents win right to teach. It has reference with a case I'm very familiar with. I was involved in it to a degree. I know the couple, Ruth and Peter Noble in Dora, Michigan. They were arrested and put on trial for educating their own children. They live out in the country near a very small town. They're really out in the woods. They felt the public schools were no place for their children, and they did not feel that the Christian school that existed in their area was doctrinally sound. So they began to teach their children at home. The children were doing remarkably well, far ahead of any child in the public schools. But they were arrested. Moreover, they were arrested by the sheriff's department in the most humiliating way possible. They were not merely served a warrant and told to come to court. They were thrown in the back of a car, taken, fingerprinted. Peter Noble was tossed into a drunk tank, and Ruth put with female offenders, everything to humiliate them. It was ironic in the trial, the defense attorney tried to bring out the circumstances of their arrest and the, the abusive way they were treated. And the state attorney fought like a tiger to keep the evidence of that from coming into court and into the records. And finally, the judge silenced the state attorney and said, sit down. Everybody knows what you did. But there are more parents facing trial. More and more attacks on the integrity of the family. The sexual revolution is one such attack. The sexual revolution today is a part of the curriculum of the public school in one community after another. And a systematically anti-Christian morality is taught in these sex education courses. Now note, they're sex education courses. 
and sex is treated as something recreational, a means of pleasure. They're not family education courses because the family is the target. And yet it's ironic. The humanists themselves have demonstrated in some of their research the significance of the biblical, the Christian family. Some years ago, a British scholar, a scientist, did one of the most thorough pieces of research ever undertaken. His whole point was to disprove the idea that morality was important, sexual morality. He collected all the evidences on sexual practices in every known tribe and people, in every culture of the past and present, going back to ancient historical records. And to his dismay, he found there was a mathematical correlation. That was his own statement. That in a society where you had no pre-marital chastity nor any post-marital chastity, where sexual license prevailed, that culture was on a dead level. They could not count beyond the fingers of their hands, and at least one they can't count beyond three. They were unable to develop tools or any real living structures. They had very little idea about the afterworld beyond a vague belief in spirits. He found that as you had some kind of sexual regulation enter in, the cultural and intellectual achievement of the people began to rise. That where you came to the biblical standard where the only legal activity sexually was within marriage, and this was practiced, you had the development of a high culture and science and progress but he also found that in three generations you could go from the top to the bottom. What was the key to civilization? Why, the key was the Christian family. This was the work of J.D. Unwin, his massive study, Sex and Culture, was published by the Oxford University Press and immediately regulated to the back shelves, and even Unwin then spent some years trying to develop some way whereby you could make an end run around his own data. They had demonstrated how important biblical faith is to society, and they didn't like the results of their own work. Humanism wants a society in which man is God. It believes in the first and great humanist manifesto, Genesis 3-5,
where the tempter says, Ye shall be as God, every man his own God, knowing and determining for yourself, in other words, good and evil. But such a society is a demand society. The hippies very eloquently at times set forth the essence of humanism. I want to be me. This is the one law. And do your own thing. No reference to any outer law or standard, meaning or purpose. I want to be me. And do your own thing. Live unto yourself. And the result is that humanism, as it teaches the child in terms of this kind of faith, the centrality of the individual, develops in every child it reaches an ego trip, creates out of him a person who becomes a part of a demand culture. A demand culture demands that all people in all life bow down and provide the individual with what he wants. The person who is a product of such a culture feels that there's something wrong with the world and with God if they do not have what they want, and they insist on their right to have a tantrum if God somehow does not give them their demands. Like the student who once told me that he had tried Christianity, he had prayed once and God hadn't given him what he wanted. So of what use is God? Now that's a logical conclusion to humanistic education. One English scientist, a philosopher of humanism, has actually said that we should take the first statement of the Westminster Shorter Catechism and reverse it to set forth the essence of humanism. God's chief end should be to enjoy man and to serve him forever. And so his conclusion was, if there be a God, this is the only valid function he should have. We have all around us today the consequences of such a faith. It is the world that is being created now, or rather, it is the kind of faith that is destroying our world today. Twenty years ago and twenty-five years ago, I had read about robberies and rape. I did not know anyone to whom these things had happened. In the past twenty years, as I have traveled across country, I've talked to people 
And I've had people call me wherever I've been staying very often to tell me of things that have happened and to ask in dismay what is happening to our country. I cannot begin to name how many, if I were to choose to name them, which I do not, whose homes have been robbed, who have been beaten, who have been raped. And we are seeing a progressive lawlessness that is destroying our society. There is no answer to that except a Christian faith which begins at the key point for the Christian family and the child and fulfills the covenant promise. Parents who take God's word seriously when he says that it's better to have a millstone hanged about our neck and to be tossed into the deepest sea than to face him when we do not do justice by his covenant children, when we give them over to ungodly hands. In a very moving plea to Jerusalem and Judah, Jeremiah says in the 10th chapter, In the first three verses, hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain, for one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. And then he goes on to describe the idolatry that ensues and the deterioration. When a people forsake the way of the Lord and learn the way of the heathen, false education, he says, leads to idolatry and then to slavery to ungodly customs. So that every man becomes brutish in his knowledge. And he cries out, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. If it is not in man, it is in the Lord. But humanism says it is in man. It gives us an education which leaves out God. Some of you may be familiar with the New Republic. It's one of the more liberal magazines of our time. Back in the teens and twenties, in its earliest days, it could be better described as radical. The editor 
Burke, B-U-R-K-E, was all the same a very remarkable man. Despite his humanism, he saw what was coming. Everyone then was talking about the triumph of science and reason and education as the key to the enlightenment of all men. And he said, no, we are going to move into an age of unreason, the revival of occultism and Satanism and witchcraft. Why? Then Burke witnessed against himself. He said, man cannot live by reason. Man must live by grace. And if he does not get grace from above, he will seek grace from below. And our society will be ruled by demonic grace. Last year, 75,000 teachers in the state schools across the country were seriously injured by assaults from students. 75,000. It appears there is some demonic grace at work in the schools. And the students, and in the teaching. Those of you who have given your children to Christian education have been faithful to your covenant vow. You have a duty to make others aware of what a fearful sin it is before God to give their children over to the enemy. We have a task before us. This nation began as a covenant people. The oath of office was taken on an open Bible opened to Deuteronomy 28. The very term oath has reference to the covenant. It was a declaration in the name of God that one would be faithful to the every word of God, to the covenant God. The framers meant the inclusion of the oath in a covenant sense. We have broken God's covenant. Thy word is true. Thou hast commanded us to give our children unto thee. We thank thee for this church and for its school. We thank thee for every Christian school throughout the country. Awaken, O Lord, the hearts of parents. that they might surrender their children unto Jesus Christ. That Christian schools might grow and flourish across the length and breadth of this land and throughout the world.
and that we might once again be a people whose God is the Lord. May thy blessing, O Lord, be upon this congregation, its under-shepherds, and its members, its parents. We thank thee for their faithfulness. We pray for thy richest blessing upon them, that they may be prospered in all their ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Byron, if you would bring those uh, books up here, and then Dr. Rushton, if you would just a few sentences about each one, and then uh, you'd be thinking about questions that you'd like to ask Dr. Rushton about uh, his message or about Christian education or about the problems across the country in this regard. First of all, these two, intellectual schizophrenia, culture, crisis, and education, speaks about the necessity for Christian schools. This one, the messianic character of American education, deals with the philosophies of education of the public schools from Horace Mann to the present. I called it messianic character because the educators saw education, the state school as the Messiah, which was going to save mankind through humanism. <clears throat> Law and Liberty is a series of, I think, 30 or 33 chapters. These were a series of broadcasts that I gave all over the country. In fact, they were on the BJU uh, station also and were replayed two or three times, dealing with the family, with education, with a number of subjects. There are very short statements. The biblical philosophy of history deals with what God has to say about what is to be accomplished in history, what we are to do. Foundations of Christian Scholarship, our foundation put out, and this is for scholars and ministers, and it deals with what the foundations are in every area of life and thought from the standpoint of Scripture. We also put out the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, and this is a symposium on education, Christian education, which I think you'll find of interest. These are Isaac Watts' Divine Songs for Children, which we reprinted with an essay by a very fine Christian woman who used these songs or poems in the educating of her own children. World History Notes, these are a series of talks I gave on world history from the earliest days to uh, or through the Reformation, and I taught several adult groups in this course, and these are the notes that they had to read as a supplement to my lectures. 
This is a volume in my series of studies in systematic theology, infallibility, an inescapable concept. If you deny that God's word is infallible, you're going to give infallibility to man in one way or another. This is a brief study on Van Til, who is the great philosopher of religion in our time. This is on Freud. Freud has been very influential in our modern world because Freud is behind the whole mental health movement and psychotherapy. What Freud did was to say we will never get rid of religion until we convert the problem of guilt to a a scientific instead of a religious question. Because he said as long as men feel guilty, they're going to feel the need for a savior. But if we tell them that guilt is merely a scientific question, we can eliminate the need for the clergy. Red Upon the Waters uh, is a series of columns on just about every subject. It's uh, one of my favorite books. I wrote these as columns for the California Farmer, a farm magazine, and I'm still writing a column for them, and I enjoy these very much myself. It's a pleasure to write them. This is a book by myself and another staff member on tithing and dominion. God has given us a key whereby we can take over one area of life after another, the tithe. It's God's requirement of us. The myth of overpopulation. That's a myth we're subjected to all the time. But it is a myth. We are not overpopulated. The nature of the American system is about the United States and what our country was intended to be, as well as what humanism has in mind. This independent republic is about our country and the colonial uh, era, and a little later, up through the War of Independence, studying what Americans then intended our country to be. This one, the politics of guilt and pity. Our politics today is aimed at making us feel guilty for everybody under the sun and to pity everybody. Well, Christian godly concern is not motivated by guilt and pity, but by grace and love, and that's something very different. The Foundations of Social Order is my wife's favorite book. It is uh, a study of the creeds and councils of the early church, because the early church had to fight the battle against the humanism of its day, and it's important for us to know how they fought it. The One in the Many is a study of the basic problem of philosophy. This will appeal to those of you who have an interest in philosophy, and it deals with the basic question of the one and the many, and points out how the basic problem in philosophy is only answered by the doctrine of the Trinity. Dr. Vern Poitras, the mathematician, uh, took the same concept, and in the Foundations of Christian Scholarship, 
he points out how we cannot have mathematics if we did not have a triune God. Now that may seem a startling thing, but here is a man who is a Ph.D. in math at Harvard who has shown the relationship of a basic article of our faith to mathematics. Psalm 1 as such an admonition. I certainly believe it covers the family. One of the things we need to remember is that the Psalms were not only the songs for temple worship, they were used by Levites and mothers to instruct their children. So the Psalms had an important part in the instruction of every child. So every child learned Psalm 1. Now, if I may say a little further there, one of the most uh, remarkable facts about our Lord's crucifixion is last word. A quotation from the psalm, not the only one, of course, in his seven words from the cross, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Now, every child was not only told, but taught the psalms, but that was to be his last sentence every night in his prayers before he went to bed. So that for every Hebrew, those words spoke about home, their parents tucking them into sleep, and they concluding before they slept with those words, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I'm sure it shook everyone there to hear that coming from the mouth of our Lord because it spoke of the peace of home and the security of a father's care and the mother's love. It's one of the most amazing uses of, song, of the Psalms in all of Scripture.
The question is with regard to psychotherapy. Now, there are several very fine studies in the past few years that have been written about the myth of mental illness. The interesting fact is that one of the most prominent contemporary psychiatrists who's a humanist, who is emphatically not Christian, Dr. Thomas Zaz, S-Z-A-S-Z, has written a series of books, one of them entitled The Myth of Mental Illness, in which he says, unless it be something with a physical cause, such as vidiparesis, or an advanced case of senility, all mental problems are really means of evading reality. They are at root religious. Maurer, M-O-W-R-E-R, of the University of Illinois, again not a Christian, said the root of mental problems is a moral problem. It's not sickness. And he said the sickness model is false. It is a moral problem. There is a psychologist in California in fact, both husband and wife, Martin and Deidre Bobgan, B-O-B-G-A-N, have written a book, The Psychological Way, The Spiritual Way. And their whole point is that we as Christians are very foolish if we look to psychiatrists or psychoanalysts or psychologists for answers when we have it in Scripture. The root of the so-called mental problems is sin. It's a moral conflict. The solution, therefore, is in Scripture. If man's problem is sin, then the solution is in the Savior. We have to relate the two. Now, J. Adams has done a great deal in this area also. So our resources as Christians is steadily increasing. Meanwhile, what these mental health people and the psychiatrists are trying to do is to pass legislation making it illegal for any Christian pastor to give counseling without their approval, their certification, after work at the school of their designation. A very fine Christian attorney and legislator in Florida, Tom Bush, prevented that from happening in Florida. He blocked the legislation. We're going to face it in a number of states. I know we're going to face an attempt to pass such legislation in California. This would immediately make all ministers guilty of malpractice, like a doctor practicing without a license, if they give any pastoral counseling. We have the only solution to the so-called mental health problems. And we had better stress the power that is ours in the Word of God. In virtually every state there are groups attempting to have all kinds of legislation to deal with child abuse. 
The fact is there is not a state that already does not have laws on the books to take care of child abuse. All these new laws would do would be to control you and me. So that all these attempts for new legislation with regard to child abuse are fraud. They are aimed against the godly family to give power to control such a family. Moreover, as child abuse is now being interpreted, actually has been in court. It includes requiring the children go to Sunday school and church and that they participate in family worship and bow their heads in prayer at the table. Now, this is actually the case. It took one minister 14 months to get his daughter back. And those were the charges in terms of which his daughter was taken from, Pastor Roy, in New York. There are numerous cases across the country where there has been no abuse of a child, but because the parents are Christian, they've been charged with child abuse. Amen. Okay. 